And welcome back to Coaching with the Bible. This is episode 76, season 2, episode 22. The Torah portion this week, Vayakhel, the second to last in the book of Exodus. Our topic this week, talent. I want you to think about for a second an incredible job opportunity. What one might call the opportunity of a lifetime if they were a member of the people of Israel in the desert after receiving the tablets at Mount Sinai. God has determined that it's time to build for him a home among the people, and he commands the Jewish people to build the tabernacle, the Mishkan, to put certain vessels and items inside to make it look a certain way, to make it portable, to make it holy, to make it sanctified. Someone is to be tasked with the role and responsibility of that project. So we're looking for a project manager. The role of leader is taken. The role of high priest is taken. The next, quote-unquote, best opportunity is this one. So I'll ask the question. If you are the HR professional tasked with finding the person to do the job of building the tabernacle and all of its vessels and all of its things, who are you looking for? I would imagine that you're not looking for a 13-year-old kid who just left Egypt after having been born into slavery, having spent all of his waking moments until the last three months in the house of slaves. And yet, the person the Bible chooses for us this week, the person that God chooses, sorry, that is told is the person to be doing the task, mentioned last week, mentioned again this week, is none other than a gentleman by the name of Bitzalel of the tribe of Judah. According to the Talmud, he is 13 years of age. Imagine that moment when Moses is told by God, I have the person to do the job. This is a massive responsibility. Moses is concerned who's going to do this job. And God says, don't worry, I have the guy. That's the guy, Bitzalel. Moses turns and looks. He sees Bitzalel has just celebrated his bar mitzvah. He is now a full-fledged adult male among the people of Israel. He's barely a teenager. He can't drive. He can't drink. He probably doesn't shave, just to be sort of a little bit jokey about it. And he's the guy. Would Moses be astonished? Would he be surprised? Would it be his first pick? Maybe, maybe Moses knows something about this person. It's not too different than the scene that takes place in the book of Samuel when the prophet Samuel is told by God to go and anoint the second king after Saul has lost the kingdom and now he has to go find the second king. Samuel goes to the house of Jesse, Yishai as he's known in the book, to pick from among his sons. Imagine his surprise when it ends up being the last son, David, who does not appear to be the image of a king, 
who he is to anoint as the king. So it's an interesting question. What was it about Bitsalah? Was there anything about him that's unique, special? What were the talents, the skills that were there? One might look at him and think, oh, he's 13 years old. He's given this job. He's a child prodigy. Certainly possible. We throw around a lot of these terms very quickly. Talent, skill, genius, prodigy. And so we want to think about those words. What makes them the case? It could very well be that in the case of something like this, it's a different situation in the sense that maybe it is some sort of a God-given thing. And so even though he's 13 years old and he has no idea about any of this work, God fills him with the spirit to do this kind of work. Now, if you're a religious-minded person and you're a believer and you know that and you have this sense about God, that God could do this, so God could fill anyone with the ability and the skills and the knowledge, you know, post-haste with the snap of a finger to be able to do everything here. Sure. And that could also be the case with all the other people who volunteer. We talked about volunteerism a couple of weeks ago, who volunteer to play a role in the building of the tabernacle, who are doing things and involved in tasks that in Egypt they had no business knowing. Working with metals, working with precious gems, sewing, working with linens and, and all kinds of materials. Not exactly the work they were probably doing as slaves in Egypt. And yet you see that in the volunteerism of the people, as it's brought down, I think it's in chapter 31, it's also brought down here in chapter, I think it's in 35, 36, similar idea that people of their own volition freely volunteered to participate in these things. They had no idea whether they could do them or not, didn't matter. And then amazingly, they are filled with this spirit, this ability then, the wisdom to do the task. The Bible describes them as wise of heart. The commentaries explain that term, wise of heart, is the sense that they had a purpose and a mission and a sense of, of doing. And so they, the proclivity, to, the inclination to step forward and take on the responsibility of the task, even without the aptitude or the skill set. And by virtue of stepping forward, God then gave them the gift or gifts to be able to do the work. Almost as if, you know, to some degree, they were just simply moving their hands and God was making it happen. So it's a fascinating discussion, thinking about talent and skill. Where does that come from? How does that work? How do we get there? Leaving B'Tzalel and the story of the tabernacle aside, potentially, but appreciating that when one looks at the commentaries in both chapter 31, when he's first introduced to Moses, and then again in chapter 35, when it's described to the people... Look at the commentaries, and every single one of them is talking about different kinds of talent. Nachmanides, Rabbi Moses ben Nachman, Ramban, as he's known, explains that Moses is to look, God tells Moses he is to look and see that amazingly among people who had just spent all this time, decades, generations, as slaves, that they would find someone with the wisdom and the ability and the skills to work with all the metals and all of the wood and all of the weaving and all of the linens and all that other stuff. It's an amazing set of skills. 
if you look at all the other commentaries, they're all thinking about, well, how did this guy get chosen? It may, must be, it must be that he showed some sort of a natural ability, what we call talent. It's not potential. I had a little bit of a rant this week in a post on LinkedIn when they first wrote the draft for it. It was a little bit tougher, and then I sort of softened it a little bit about the concept of potential. Let's not talk about potential. Let's talk about what that actually means. Potential is a term that, from my experience, and I wrote this in that piece, is a negative. It doesn't actually mean anything. We think it does, but it doesn't actually mean anything. What ends up happening in a more specific way when we're looking at it, here's an example. You're at work, you're a leader, you're a, a founder, a CEO, an executive, and you have to hire. When you write the job description, you don't say you're looking for potential. You don't even say you're looking for talent. You don't even say you're looking for skill. You get very specific about the skill sets you're looking for. <coughs> Excuse me. So potential is just a word. We want to hope and think that it has a positive meaning when you say to somebody, like as I wrote in the piece that I was told many times as a, as a, as a kid, I had so much potential. It grates on me to this day to hear that term. Don't say potential. Tell the person that they got skills. Tell the person that you see in them natural talents and abilities that they can develop. Tell them that they're smart. Tell them that they're curious. Don't tell them that they have potential. It doesn't mean anything to a person when they hear that term. It's not enough. But when we think about talent and we want to think about what talent is and how talent works, it's a very important, very powerful thing because sometimes we see that a person has talent. They have some natural ability, for lack of a better uh, definition. And that's what a lot of the, the dictionaries will determine and, and, and define talent is, as some sort of natural uh, ability that simply is there with a person for no reason, almost effortless to some degree. And so it's great. And to say, oh, that person's talented. Like that athlete, well, they're talented. They're a prodigy. They're a genius. And it, to some degree, there's some truth to it, but more often than not, we use it as an excuse to free ourselves of the burden of our own talents and skills and abilities. It's unfortunate. And so when one goes on the search for real definitions of these terms like talent, to really understand what that is, we want to think about natural or innate ability versus developed skills over time, and you read the literature on the subject, it's fascinating. In a book called Peak, Secrets from the New Science of Expertise by Anders Ericsson, who's a PhD professor at Florida State University, this book was written, I think, 20 years ago. He basically says the following, in the long run, it is the ones who practice more who prevail, not the ones who had some initial advantage in intelligence or some other talent. No matter the skill, it is persistent practice that leads to reaching the pinnacle. It is not simply having natural abilities. It's not even having natural skills. 
So a person picks up a, a screwdriver for the first time, has incredible uh, aptitude with it. person sits down at a piano the first time and somehow manages to tap out a song the first time they play. That is not indicative of anything. It ultimately comes down to practice. He doesn't necessarily buy the idea of innate talent leading to expertise or leading to some sort of very high level. In his studies... In his studies on the matter, he is, by the way, the person from which the idea of 10,000 hours of practice comes from. It's from Anders Ericsson. So his initial studies with the violinists, 10,000 hours of practice was the, was the number for the highest performing group among his violinists. That group did more than 2,000 hours more than what would call the good violinists and more than 6,000 hours more than those who became violin teachers, meaning that it was the extent to which they practiced. We'll get into more about the practice in just a second. But there were no exceptions, meaning nobody who did very little amount of uh, practice achieved the highest level of performance. Didn't happen. And in fact, he says that to attain excellence, it's really the idea of 10 years and 10,000 hours. That's then what Malcolm Gladwell made famous in one of his books about the idea of 10,000 hours of practice. That comes from Anders Ericsson, who ultimately, again, has this idea that innate talent is nothing. And it cannot happen, he writes, on autopilot. Meaning that person simply just, you know, practices the same set of skills over and over and over again. They'll just get better at those skills. They're not just going to get better overall. And it doesn't happen on autopilot simply by just going through the motions. If the person he writes is not operating to improve, then they don't improve. And then only by working on that which they cannot do, do they then improve overall. That is to say the following. If you are an athlete, let's say you play basketball. If you have figured out how to dribble with one hand, you will not become an expert basketball player by continuing to just be able to dribble the basketball with one hand. It's then learning how to dribble with the other hand. It's learning how to pass and to shoot, to do all kinds of different things in the game itself. So autopilot practice of the same thing that you're good at is eventually not worth much. It's only by working on the things that you are not good at, you actually ultimately improve. So if it's the case maybe in the desert with the people of Israel, maybe when they started to spin and weave, well, they made a couple of mistakes. Maybe. We don't know. But the reality of it is, is that it would take time until the person got it right. It did take them some time to ultimately finish the project. Again, we don't have any sense or any idea about any mistakes that were made. But that's the idea. So it's a concept here then of what's called deliberate practice. I've talked about deliberate practice before. And in an article in the Harvard Business Review called The Making of an Expert, they talk about deliberate practice. And deliberate practice is two things. It's improving the skills you already have. Obviously, you want to get better at what you're good at. And then extending the range and the reach of your skills, obviously, to the things that you are not good at. And so by continuing to then do the, go through the actions and the work on the new things, do you then overall, does your game improve? And then there's a synthesis that comes from the skills that you acquired initially, with the skills that you're working on now, with the skills that you're just touching the surface on that are coming at a later point. It don't all come at once. It comes over the course of time. But it's not just deliberate practice. 
The article then talks about the concept of deliberate thinking, deliberate planning. The idea that I have to also think about what I'm doing, when I'm doing it, when I'm practicing it, when I'm working on my skill set, on my quote-unquote talents. Otherwise, I'm not doing anything. And so I'm paying attention to the motions that work, and then that's what I'm repeating. And that's the muscle memory that I'm trying to build is on the skill set that actually works. And so what's happening here is, whereas uh, Professor Erickson doesn't buy the notion of innate talent, Scott Barry Kaufman, who wrote an article in The Guardian in 2013, talks about the idea that there is, of course, in his opinion, and others as well, certainly, that there's a genetic influence in the abilities or the innate sense, quote-unquote, of those skills. But as much as it's genetically influenced, he writes, it's not genetically determined. That is that same point. Talent is developed through the interaction, as he writes, the interaction of genes and environment. It comes from practice, practices that are complementary and not at odds with each other, right? It's very important to sort of appreciate that I can't take the last skill that I need to be a superstar and start working on that now. I have to work on the foundational skills first that lead me to then the next level of skills that lead me to the third level of skills that lead me to the fourth level of skills. And then it is the synthesis of all those things together. Uh, Professor Kaufman talks about it in the sense of like an orchestra. When you think about an orchestra, what makes the sound of the orchestra and the symphony that they're playing beautiful? Every person who's playing has to be at a very high level. There has to be a synthesis of all of their playing. They have to be on key, on tune, in sync with each other, in sync with their own instrumental section, in sync with their own instrument, obviously, and then in sync with the ultimately with the entire orchestra. But it also requires the right environment. And so, as I've mentioned before, James Clear talks about environmental design, and he talks a lot about the concept of system. It's important to appreciate that when we're sort of doing this orchestra sort of analogy as an idea of how our talents develop and our skills develop over time, that these things have to sync up over time. That it's me with my instrument, me with my group, me with the ultimate full team, and then also appreciating that there is a maestro, that there is a person who is nurturing and supporting and coordinating and organizing and developing and pushing the group forward. You might call them also the conductor, person who syncs up the process. And so this is really crucial about what's going on in the work of talent. And when we look, as I said earlier, at people who have reached a level of ability, that could be as a teacher, that could be as a chef, that could be as an attorney, that could be as an athlete, that could be whatever that is. It could be that the person started earlier, they got started earlier, they got started younger, what you call an early bloomer, what some might think of as a prodigy. But we shouldn't dismiss the person who is sort of the late bloomer, the person who comes along a little bit later in life when their height catches up with their speed and their hand-eye coordination catches up with the rest of them. It's not a zero-sum game, he writes. Just because someone displays it early doesn't mean you can't display it late. And to think about it in the manner in which uh, Angela Duckworth talks about it in her book, Grit, and writes about it and talks about it in other places, 
is the idea that talent isn't something necessarily purely just something, an innate thing. Talent, she understands it, is how quickly your skills improve when you invest the effort. Meaning, it's how quickly do you respond to that which you're doing when you're doing it. So if you're going to learn how to shoot foul shots in basketball, right, how quickly does your hand-eye coordination work? How quickly does the motion of the body sync up with what it is that you're doing in the course of your practice? And so it takes time to get there. To think about in a great quote, this is a quote from Stephen King, the famous uh, author, which is this, talent is a dull knife that will cut nothing unless it is wielded with great force. Talent is the natural aptitude toward any given task. Skill is the acquired ability. Talent is the dull knife. Skill is the great force that's being applied to it and that's being wielded. And so it's important for us when we're working with our people and our teams and our lives and our families and, of course, ourselves, that we sort of de demythologize the idea of top, perform top performers as something that they're innately born with and that's who they are and that's how they are and that's how they live. There may be a grace and a beauty to what they do, but that grace and beauty is acquired over the course of a decade plus of practice. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of hours of work and, and, and effort on the smallest and the, and, the, and the most minute of detail that builds and builds and builds until all of the things mesh and sink. Sometimes you can look in someone and see, oh, they're in the middle of the process. They got certain skills down. They don't have other ones down. They, they made some improvements here, but they're not there. But you can sense that it's coming in some way at some point later on. And it's important for us to do the work here on the deliberate practice and deliberate thinking. It's important for us to create the environment that we want to succeed. We need environment to succeed. It's important for us to have people who are supporting and nurturing and conducting and coaching and teaching at each and every level as we improve. It's not valuable to have the person who taught you how to just hold the basketball necessarily be the person who's going to try and get you in uh, to the NBA. Like you need a different level of experience, a different level of skill and different level of expertise is going to coach you at that place. And then it requires doing the work. Uh, they say about Benjamin Franklin that as he wanted to improve uh, his ability, his mental aptitude and his ability to write, that he would read articles and then he would try to recreate the articles on his own and see how close he came. And then to learn skill over the course of time to become better at it. Of course, measuring it is super important. And as I said, genetics do play a role. Some people do get there more quickly. There's no question that that's the case. And there's no question that getting to an expert level is multifactorial. It's not just one thing. It's many things happening at the same time. And so the question then becomes for you as the leader, whether that's, again, in your home, in your business, in your life, in your community, is then how do you then go about developing those talents? How does Moses go about developing a Betzalel? How does he go about getting other people to volunteer their time and effort and skills with things that they don't know how to do? How does he find those people? We see it a lot in, at work, wherever we may be, that we get it wrong. It happens. We get it wrong. And so the question is, like, how do we get it right? How do we get it right more often? So in another article, of course, in the Harvard Business Review, which is what I quote, a ton in here in coaching with the Bible, 
they put out a sort of a set of principles. And it's not what we normally think about with respect to hiring. Normally, we write a job description and then we look for resumes that match the job description. That is not enough. One, think ahead. The idea here is not just to think for now, but think about skill sets that people have. You're looking for talent. You're looking for skills, right? You're looking for uh, ability. You're looking for maybe measured results. Take those with a grain of salt. But you're looking through your talent strategy over the course of time. This job leads to the next job, leads to the third job, leads to the fourth job, leads to management, whatever that is. Think it all the way through. We talk a lot in here in Coaching with the Bible about thinking things second and third level down. That's also true with respect to hiring. You also want to focus on the right traits. So not just a resume and not just past performance. You want to look out for seeking, you know, what we call what, what are called founda- foundational traits, what others might call the soft skills. Sort of the sense of EQ, emotional intelligence, the drive, learnability, coachability, what I've talked about here and I've learned and I've shared with many others uh, here, which is the idea of uh, humble, hungry, smart, the Patrick Lencioni uh, approach to hiring. Humble, hungry, smart. You want humble people. You want hungry people. You want smart people. And then you want to think more inclusively. We're not looking just for people who look like us, smell like us, sound like us, have the same experience as us. We want to find people who are wider and more diverse than us, who maybe have a different background than us, and so that their eyes and the new set of eyes that they might bring to a situation as a leader, as a talented, skilled professional might be very, very valuable. And you also obviously want to be data-driven. Don't just go on the gut. What does the math say? What do the numbers tell you about what it is that you're trying to accomplish? And, you know, how many candidates that might be and who that might actually be. It's a lot going on here in the talent conversation. There's a ton to really talk about. And then it's really upon you to make those people better. The role of the leader, the role of the manager is to serve the team. Coach them, teach them, encourage them, and then get out of the way. So it's important for us to appreciate that the sense of talent development or talent management, as it's called, is really the sense of people management. And it's not just simply looking at potentials, as I said, it's looking at developed skill sets. It's looking at future skill sets that are already innately in the person, quote unquote, I'm gonna use that word, quote unquote, innately here, that are there, that you can see, that you believe based on past experience that this person can also develop. Those things are there, they're internal to the person. The question simply is, the person's interest, drive, stretch, push to actually develop those things. And so what it is in the end of the day is the following thing. It's a great quote to sort of end off coaching with the Bible with. It was said by Irma Bombeck, who was a writer in the US in the 20th century, Many, many articles, a lot of different kinds of books. Most of her books ended up being bestsellers, and she said as follows. When I stand before God at the end of my life, I would hope that I would not have a single bit of talent left and could say, I used everything you gave me. It's not the potentialities, and it's not the things that might be. It's the things that were there, the things that I learned and appreciated about who I am and what I am and what I can bring, that I brought it all every single ounce of it, and left nothing on the table to remain behind. That is the sense of not just 
sensing skill and talent and possibilities, but actualizing them and bringing them about and telling yourself, these are the things that I can actually do. This is what I can actually accomplish in the world. This is what I'm set out for here. That is Coaching with the Bible for this week. Look forward to seeing you next week.